Well, good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. As you know, uh, Brad has been preaching through the book of Isaiah these weeks. This morning we're going to take a break from Isaiah in order to meditate on one of the major themes of Isaiah, and that is hope. In fact, it's a theme of the whole Bible, that God intends for His Word when believed and trusted upon and taken to heart to give His people serious hope, a certain expectation about what is to come, a certain expectation about what God will do, and a kind of expectation that's meant to completely change the way we think and feel and live. And so our passage this morning will proclaim the essence of our hope, and that's resurrection to an eternal inheritance. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Well, Father, we pray that you would bring about in our hearts the very thing that Peter is proclaiming, that we would rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. You would cause us not to put our hope in lesser things, to not put our hope in things that fade, in things that are defiled, and things that pass away, and things that can be taken. But through your word and by your spirit, you would root our faith and our hope deeply in Jesus, in his word, in his work, in his return, and in the fact that we will be raised with him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, everyone hopes in something. Everyone hopes in someone. Even you think about when you're driving on unfamiliar roads, when I'm driving on unfamiliar roads, we will put a degree of faith, a degree of hope in Google Maps in ways. We'll just plug in that destination, hit start, and get driving, trusting that if we just follow this path, we will arrive at whatever destination we put in and in whatever direction we'll go, that we will get there. It's a kind of hope. And when you deny the inspiration and authority and truthfulness of Scripture, 
you'll find that both present life and future life will get very fuzzy. Nothing becomes certain. Hope becomes fragile, becomes fleeting. Because nothing that is truly critical to our future is guaranteed. Even listen to to a couple of modern-day philosophers talk about faith and hope in the future. This is Dan Millman. Faith means living with uncertainty, feeling your way through life, letting your heart guide you like a lantern in the dark. So he says faith means living without certainty, just letting your heart lead the way. Well, what if your heart, as Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick? What if your heart is filled with darkness? How will it be light? Who of us as parents have been teaching our children just to feel their way through life? Just let their heart lead them. Why would God teach us that? Or Jonathan Sachs, a rabbi and religious author, one of the leading authors in Great Britain, says, we are biological creatures. We are born, we live, we die. There's no transcendent purpose to existence. At best, we are creatures of reason. And by using reason, we can cure ourselves of emotional excess. Purged of both hope and fear, we find courage in the face of helplessness, insignificance, and uncertainty. Ugh. Do you feel that? We face the helplessness and uncertainty by getting rid of hope, which is simply emotional excess, he would call. He really needs this passage this morning. Just as we really need this passage, because it doesn't purge hope, it infuses it. It grows it. It grounds it. The Christians to whom Peter is writing, verse 1, are elect exiles. Followers of Jesus Christ scattered around a world that hates Jesus Christ. Citizens of heaven living as foreigners on earth, primarily Gentiles, but also Jews dispersed across this region that we would now know as modern Turkey, who have come to faith in Christ, and their circumstances in coming to faith in Christ have grown worse, not better. They're now surrounded by people who don't like them. The pressures at work, in community, in their own homes, in their families have gotten greater, not less. They are, verse 6, grieved by various trials. And so they're really wondering, did we receive the right good news? You said we were getting good news. You said believing this would be good. And yet we believed and trusted, and it's worse circumstantially. The Lord has chosen, forgiven, and redeemed us in Christ, is what they're thinking, then why has life gotten so hard? Their faith is, verse 7, being tested by fire. Nothing fancy, just daily afflictions, daily hardship, daily pressures. The same ones we'll face. There's no escaping it. So the Lord wants them to realize, wants us to realize through the words of Peter that our hope is not circumstantial. It's spiritual. It's not dead. It's living. It's not despairing. It's joyful. It's not bitter toward God. It's full of worship. 
And so from this passage, what we'll do is draw out seven key distinctives, and they'll hopefully flash up on the board behind us as I walk through them. Seven key distinctives of a truly Christian hope, a hope that is set apart from every other kind of hope. The first distinctive is the basis for our hope. See verse 3, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our first birth was no basis for hope, just despair. Like sheep, we were all born looking for a way to die. If you've ever owned sheep, you know what I mean. They were born looking for a way to die. And that's how we come into the world. But when God plants the imperishable seed of His Word, 1 Peter 1.23, and the Spirit unites us to Christ, gives us new hearts, we're born again. And immediately we receive this living hope. And the reason it's a living hope is because Jesus lives. We receive this because of God's, notice verse 3, great mercy. He chose to withhold from us all the due consequences of our sin, all the due consequences of our rebellion, and he did that by pouring all of them out on his son instead. And so the Father, notice, causes us to be born again. It's his work. He puts the seed of his word in us. He gives the spirit to us. He gives us a new heart, union with Christ, and we're born again. The Father causes it to happen which is why Peter gives him glory for it. Notice how he starts in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He opens with doxology. He opens with worship. And he's going to spend the remaining verses explaining why. The Father chose to place us in Christ such that we were buried and raised with him to new life. And this new birth... Peter's saying, gives a new living hope, a certain expectation that God will raise us just as he raised Jesus. And so we don't wish to be raised as if it's up for grabs, as if it's up for chance. We absolutely expect it because the Father has already brought Jesus from the grave. We know that when we go there, he'll bring us out. And it is a learned hope. We don't come into the world with this hope. We spend most of our lives hoping in a certain kind of childhood, hoping in a certain kind of physical body, hoping in a certain kind of marriage, a certain kind of church, a certain kind of children, a certain kind of country, a certain kind of fill-in-the-blank. It's what we spend most of our lives hoping in. And then the Lord spends the rest of our lives giving us new hopes. False hope always produces disappointment, always. False hope always leads to discouragement, always. False hope always leads us to say eventually, what's the point, and just give up. Moses, you may recall, expected and desired approval from others, but he got rejection. He got scorn instead. Jonah expected to see the Ninevites judged and condemned. And instead, he got to witness their deliverance. Elijah expected revival to break out after Mount Carmel and the whole nation be changed. And instead, he just got more death threats. 
And in all these examples, these men, all prophets, longed and prayed for death when it was all over. Because their hopeful expectations for the present time were dashed. All the things that they expected would come true, all the things they banked on, were shattered. And the Lord used all that to teach them how to rest their hope on a better foundation. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That when we start to build our lives on sand, a Father who loves us comes along and just knocks it over. And that's not to be mean. That is so that we would build our lives on rock. That we would build our lives on something that will not disappoint. That we would build our lives on something that cannot be taken away. The Lord has a way of making sure that each and every one of us at some point will despair of life itself. And this is a gift. It's not an unkindness, it's a kindness. In order to teach us, number one, the basis for our hope, and that it is being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that number two, he would teach us a new object of our hope, which is our second point, the object of our hope. Verse 4, we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That the gospel actually promises you something more valuable than anything in all the world. Something more valuable than all the values of the world put together. We belong to a new family with a new father, and therefore we have a new inheritance. The inheritance of your old family, that was death. The inheritance of this new family, this is life. And the irony of this new inheritance is you actually receive it when you die, not when your parents die. Notice he says it is imperishable, which means lasting, eternal, immune to death. It's undefiled, meaning it's pure, it's clean, it's unblemished, it's immune to corruption. It's unfading, which means it's sustained, it's renewable, it's reliable, it's immune to decay, and it's kept in heaven, meaning it's reserved, it's guarded, it's safe, it's immune to theft or loss. The Word of God is, according to chapter 1, verse 23, imperishable. That's the word that's been put in you, and that's why your inheritance is imperishable. The Word of the Lord abides forever. That's why your inheritance in Him abides forever. This is so important. Because the reason that we spend so much time anxious, so much time worried, so much time joyless arises from the fact that we put our hopes in things that perish. 
Maybe the hope now is that the Razorbacks will finish the season undefeated. But that's a fragile hope. Do you feel it? In six days? And so enjoy it. It's a gift. It's a blessing. But hope? To put so substantial a word on so flimsy a thing? That's the very thing that God is protecting us from. So many anxieties, so many worries, so many joyless days because we put our hope in things that get defiled, in things that fade away, in things that can be taken away. Because everything in this present life, everything you possess in this life will eventually be lost. And before it is lost, it will be corrupted. And while being corrupted, it will slowly fade and decay. And so money is not bad in and of itself, but a terrible source of hope. Enjoying the Razorbacks is a wonderful pastime, but a terrible source of hope. Possessions, food, drink, sexual pleasure, all good gifts, but don't deserve our hope. Enjoy it while it lasts. Just remember it doesn't last. That's what God's saying. Just go tour a junkyard sometime and you'll see it. The prevailing feature of every junkyard is rust. It's decay. You get to go and just walk the aisles of that junkyard and see all the things that so many of us will expend our lives trying to achieve and obtain. And that's where it all goes. That's where our bodies eventually will go. That's where everything that we might hope in in this passing world will go. Retirement plans can crumble. Or we just die before we get there. Created things don't provide our hope. They point us to the one in whom we're to hope. First Peter 1, or First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul calls Christ Jesus our hope. Christ is our inheritance. And through Christ, by the way, we'll inherit everything else. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. In other words, the present world will pass away, a new heavens, a new earth will be created, and in Christ Jesus, the meek will inherit it. A new world, a world that doesn't pass away, a physical world that the meek will inherit, those who have turned from their own self-righteousness and trusted entirely upon Christ. That's all part of their inheritance. Jesus says to those who give up their hope and worldly possessions in, all, in order to follow him, Matthew 19, 29, will inherit eternal life. Jesus says of the children of God in Matthew 25, 34, that they will inherit the kingdom. It's guaranteed. Why? Well, because Christ is the one who guarantees it. And he guarantees us. Which brings us to our next point, and that is the security of our hope. Verse 5, it is God's power. We, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, this inheritance that is promised to us does not come as the prize of the end of a race that we run in our own strength, that we just claw our way out. The gospel does not say, if you crawl your way home, he'll take you in. And that's actually a hopeless idea. The security of our hope is the power of God. 
Peter says we are guarded by the power of God for salvation. Over and over again, that's how God talks to his routine people in the Scripture. Isaiah 41.10, don't fear, I'm with you. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. John 6.37, all the Father gives to me, Jesus says, I'll never lose any. They'll all make it home. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in us, Ephesians 1.19. In other words, not only is your inheritance secure, you are secure. You won't be lost. Though trials come, eventually death will come, even that will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.39. And so to ask yourself, what is your source of security? Is it your physical strength or God's power? Is it economic strength or God's power? Is it conservative government or God's power? Is it fill in the blank or is it God's power? Because if you are in Christ, if you've repented of sin and looked to Him as your Redeemer and you've been put in Him, then the Heavenly Father promises to protect your soul, even to protect your faith by His power. In other words, the prize is at the end of the finish line, and He promises He will get you to the end of the finish line. At His right hand, there are pleasures forever, and it's His right hand that will keep you at His right hand. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1, is the power that is at work in you. That's why Paul calls the Spirit of God our guarantee, the down payment, the seal, the proof that the work he begun, he will finish. You are protected by his power. And so what we pray is that those very kinds of truths would produce real, deep security in our souls. And the more those take root there, the less we worry, the less we get anxious the less we get angry and enraged when the world starts spiraling out of control, the less we grieve and mourn and disappointment and discouragement when things are lost, that the Lord promises will be lost, and the more our hope truly becomes unshakable, secure. It does not depend on us, but upon God. It doesn't depend on our performance, but on God who raises the dead. That's where our faith lies. And it's that faith that is the very mechanism of our hope, which brings us to our next point. The mechanism of our hope is faith. Notice again in verse 5, we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. The means by which we trust, the means by which we enjoy the power of God is faith. And that doesn't mean that our faith makes God's power more or less effective. It just means our faith typically makes God's power more or less experienced and known and tasted and trusted upon. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So our faith doesn't give God power, but our faith assures us of His power. Our faith convinces us that what He said He will do, 
He will do. And so we instill hope in our hearts by feeding our faith through the Word of God. You can't watch the news and feed faith. Not at the same time. Unless there's some passage of Scripture you're holding in your mind at that moment. You can't spend your days on social media or keeping up with Instagram and feed faith. Unless all that's being filtered through the Word of God. It's His Word that instills hope. It's His Word that shows us who God is and what He will do. Notice how faith is a constant theme in these verses. Verse 5, guarded through faith. Verse 7, genuineness of your faith. Verse 8, you believe in Him. Verse 9, outcome of your faith. And so often when we hear the word faith, we think of something very small and very flimsy. We'll say things like, you know, just have faith. That's just now the, not how the Bible talks about faith. Faith is something that God produces in a human heart that grows massive over time. Roots that are meant to go deep. A faith that is meant to be cultivated. Something big, something God-given, something slow building over time. Something that compels us to humbly trust in the Lord and follow His promises for us. Faith even hopes in things that are unseen, which is part of the miracle of it. Faith hopes in the unseen. Look down at verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You don't see Him, you just heard about Him. You've just read about Him. And somehow when that news and the Spirit of God in you come together, something convinces you, God convinces you, this is true. This one who I do not see, I love. Because this one who I do not see loves me. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. Because our flesh only trusts in that which it can grasp. Only trusts in that which it can process through the physical senses. Yet this faith is spiritual. This faith is a work of the Spirit that helps us interpret all of life through the Word of God. You think about it, you don't, you don't see gravity, right? I don't see gravity. But you trust what scientists say about gravity. You've maybe experienced little tastes of gravity if you've all ever fallen over. And when you're walking beside a cliff, you're probably going to make decisions based on your faith in gravity. Or oxygen, we don't see oxygen. Yet we get up every morning and walk out of our house believing it's there. It will do what God has purposed it to do. Well, how much more a life based upon what God says to be true? You're willing to rely on gravity, something God created because someone else told you about it, how much more the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Romans 8, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We don't see Christ, we trust Him, and we wait on Him, which brings us to our fifth point, the timeline of our hope. Verse 5, 
a salvation ready to be revealed. Because hope, by definition, is forward-looking. It gives peace in the present. It gives rest in the present because of what God promises to do at a later time. And this is hard for us because we tend to desire immediate gratification, immediate relief from trouble, immediate rest, immediate solving of circumstantial problems. Yet our hope looks ahead. According to verse 5, our salvation is ready to be revealed. But that might mean 50 years from now. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, that salvation was ready to be revealed, and it is ready to be revealed. According to verse 9, salvation of our souls is an outcome of our faith. That is something future, something resting in the hands of our Lord and His timing. And what suffering does is it just tempts us to get so fixated on the present time. Just make the pain stop. Make the trial end. Give me immediate relief right now. Biblical hope waits. The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, combined with faith in God, compels us to hope and to wait. And I think this is perhaps one of the hardest things about following Jesus. Because we just instinctively want to alleviate all suffering right away. Not sit still while we wait for deliverance with hope. Just try sitting under a surgery without anesthesia. And don't move. Try not moving when facing a charging bull. Everything in you will scream, get out from under this. Get out of the way of this. And so it's otherworldly. It's godly. It's something from the Spirit of God to actually be still under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties upon Him because you know He cares for you, waiting for that deliverance because it's so incredibly worth it. Because when Christ appears, our hope is fulfilled. We will, verse 7, praise and honor and glory it is coming. On that day, we'll be so glad we didn't quit. On that day, we'll be so glad that the Lord just rooted us in faith in His words. There, in the middle of the battle, in the middle of all the trouble, bearing all the burdens, afflicted in every way, and then Christ just appears. We sang about it all morning, right? He just shows up on the clouds. And the whole world sees him. And for all those who have been tested and refined, who are in Christ and afflicted, will praise and honor and glory it is coming. That's not the day you want to be disappointed because he interrupted your fun. Because sometimes that's the kind of life we're trying to create, right? Of kind of, a kind of life that isn't too urgent to, for God to appear. Just get enough vacations, enough possessions, enough pleasure, enough comfort, enough ease, that if Christ comes back, great. If he doesn't, we'll make it. That's just not what God's trying to produce in us. He's trying to produce the kind of faith, the kind of hope that screams when he shows up, that praises and honors and glories it is coming. That's why he's going to say later in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Because when he comes, we're meant to glory in him. We're meant to rejoice in him. And that's when we'll probably come to more fully realize that the Lord used every single trial to prepare us for that day. Every single trial to fix our hope on that day. Which brings us to our sixth point, the maturation of our hope. How God uses trials to mature us. Because too often we hope in the absence of trials. That's often our hope. When the Lord actually intends to use trials to teach us lasting hope. Romans 5, 3, and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings. Think about that a minute. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Do you trust that? Do you believe that this morning? So deeply that when trials come, you rejoice. You give praise to God in the midst of suffering because you know he's going to use that suffering to produce endurance in you. And he's going to use that endurance to produce character in you. He's going to use that character to produce hope in you. And what does this hope never do? Never disappoints. If you go find a 50-ton piece of gold ore, if you're digging somewhere, you just have this 50-ton piece of gold ore, and you're told that there's more gold in that ore than has ever been found in the history of the world. You know, if you've ever seen gold ore, it's just a big, massive rock. And you're probably not going to have a problem, like, letting machines take that rock and smash it to pieces and then grind it to dust and then throw it all into a furnace where it can be heated to very, very high temperatures so that you get the purest gold out of it as you possibly can. Well, from God's point of view, our faith is more precious than that gold. It's precious to him. It should be precious to us. He's willing to use all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of trials, like a furnace, to raise the temperature of our lives so high that all the dross, all the impurities just raise to the surface, and he sloughs them away. And just when we think that ought to be enough, he raises the temperature so that even more impurities, even more dross would rise to the surface and be sloughed away because he's far more concerned with our sanctification than our ease. He's far more concerned with the purity of our faith than the comfort of our circumstances. And he'll use all those circumstances to produce in us the very kind of faith that hopes for the appearing of Jesus Christ. So that every trial you're in, every affliction you ever face, every difficulty that's on you, every trouble you're under, in the middle of it, you can know he's using this. He's using this to produce in me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He's using this to refine faith in such a way that when Jesus shows up, I'll praise him all the more. I'll honor him all the more. I'll glory in him all the more. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice 
insofar as you share Christ's afflictions, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. These Christians in Asia Minor thought, hey, Peter, I think we got the wrong message. Whatever that good news is we believed, I think it's the wrong news because life's gotten really rough. And Peter says, no, you got the right thing. You've believed on the right person. Don't be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you to test you and your faith the way God would refine gold. But rather rejoice. Insofar as in any way that you get to share in Christ's sufferings, all the more you will rejoice when his glory is revealed. This is the worldview of the scripture. This is the theology of the Bible. This is the practical counsel of God's word. This is how he equips us to live in this world full of hope and therefore full of rejoicing. Which leads to our seventh and final point, the expression of our hope, rejoicing with joy inexpressible. That joy is the gift God gives through His Spirit, through Jesus, right now. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Though trials and suffering and afflictions are a present reality, a hope that is fixed on Christ and His promises, God's saying will produce deep joy, serious rejoicing. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, that is, in this inheritance that is reserved for us, in this salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He said, right now you rejoice in that. Verse 8, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy is this wholehearted experience and rejoice is the expression Joy is that fire of gladness in God that's sort of burning inside us. Rejoice is the venting of all that gladness in God that comes out of us. Joy is sort of this essence of unshakable satisfaction in Christ. Rejoice is the inevitable, worshipful consequence of that joy. We just can't help but sing. We just can't help but give praise to God. We just can't help but rejoice because he's given us a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And this doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't always make sense to us because it tends to sprout in the midst of pain and trouble. It tends to be the fruit of the Spirit at work in some of the most unlikely people. In other words, the world is meant to look at us and go, I don't understand why you're so happy. Nothing about your life tells me you ought to be very happy. You're not very successful. You're not very good looking. The stuff you own and possess isn't all that impressive. You're not famous. You don't have all this great power and things at work. You're not always scrambling to be at the top to control everything. You just seem content to be at the bottom. And yet you have all this joy. And the more you lose, the more you rejoice. And the more things get hard and difficult, the more you rejoice. That is the evidence of the power of the gospel. That is the thing that God is trying to use to make his point. He's chosen the poor things of this world to shame the wise. 
He's chosen the weak things of this world to show where strength really comes from. So we should not busy ourselves trying to create a life for ourselves through which the Lord cannot tell that testimony. Rather, we must be ready for Him to strip away much, to take away much that this world values, so that when they see joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, they have to wonder, what is this hope that is in you? That's why Peter says, right, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And they're going to ask you because it just doesn't make sense that you have all this hope. It doesn't make sense that you have all this joy. And that's when we say, well, because I've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled, reserved in heaven for me. And even now I'm being kept by the power of God for salvation that's ready to be revealed. You too can come and know this Jesus. You too can be born again through a living hope in Him. Just turn from your faith and your trust and all these things that are passing away and look to Him instead. And you too can have this joy that is unshakable. So when Paul, writing from prison in Philippians 4, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He's not joking. He's not exaggerating. He doesn't come up later and go, you know what, I was just kidding. No, he means it. From prison, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is not something you invoke when you're about to start your intramural softball game. It's not something you invoke when you're about to start your flag football league. It's not a, we're going to win this game because of Christ. No, it's something you invoke when you need serious contentment under trial. When you need serious joy to sprout when there's pain. That's when we say, Lord, help me. And Lord, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This could be why it is inexpressible. Because there's simply not the right quality or quantity of words to capture the depth and the splendor and the strength of this joy. It defies human wisdom. It thrives under the worst circumstances. This joy is filled with glory because it's filled with thoughts of glory, emotions that arise from glory, affections that arise in response to knowing a person who is himself the essence of glory. Gospel-rooted hope produces hope-rooted joy. Gospel-rooted hope produces hope-rooted joy. A present joy in what is promised later. An immediate satisfaction in what is certain to come. So if you've ever seen somebody win like a million dollars on a game show or a hundred million dollars in some lottery, you're witnessing somebody who is rejoicing because of hope. I mean, think about it. They haven't received a penny. And yet they're promised something that they're expecting will certainly come. They're not going to see that money for days, maybe weeks, maybe months. They're not going to be able to buy anything with that money for weeks, months, maybe years. And yet they jump up and down screaming with gladness. Well, Whatever that is, it is minuscule to what Peter is talking about here. It doesn't pale in comparison that the Heavenly Father will be your Father forever. 
that the joys of his presence will be your joys forever, that the new heavens and the earth will be yours to explore and delight in and feast upon forever, that seeing and hearing Jesus will go on forever. The Father will actually give you the kingdom. Your body will be raised and glorified forever. Your relationships will be blissful forever. No more tears, no more pain, no more loss, no more fatigue or hunger or thirst or discomfort. Only pleasure, only contentment, only satisfaction, only fullness, only glory forever. And in those future realities, Peter says, we rejoice now. Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We have to expend energy reflecting upon and thinking about the glory that is to be revealed in us so that we would realize that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to it. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members even of this church, let us encourage each other to stop putting our hope in things that pass away. Let's help one another make the basis for our hope, the fact that we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Talk about that together. Remind one another of that truth. Let us remind one another that the object of our hope is an inheritance reserved for us in heaven, not on earth. We had a good friend that every time they would buy furniture or possessions in their home, they would print out a sticker and stick it to the back, and it said, reserved for fire. That's what they wanted their kids growing up realizing. Every toy, every TV, every object, everything, it's reserved for fire. There's other things that will last forever. We have to remind one another that the object of our hope is an inheritance that's reserved in heaven. We can encourage one another to rely on God's power, not our own, to feed faith in one another, not self-sufficient grit. We can use our words to remind one another to wait on Christ in the midst of trials, to remember our salvation is soon to be fully revealed so that we would rejoice together with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And then when he shows up, it's just praise and honor and glory forever. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who planned all this. You're the one who ordained and ordered all this. You're the one who even now by your power protect us and keep us. You help us. And you're the one who has set aside a place for us, that even now Jesus prepares it, an inheritance beyond all that we could imagine, reserved in heaven for us. Grow our faith, we pray. Deepen our hope. Prepare us for that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In response, we're going to sing, as is fitting, a mighty fortress. So let's stand together and sing.